electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. Happy Friday. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. The jobs number disappoints again. Fewer than half as many jobs created as expected, but the unemployment rate falls to a stunning 3.9%, and the Fed's barely started tightening. So do we have a strong labor market or not? We have both sides of that debate. And Bitcoin hitting its lowest level since September. It's down 40% from its highs now. But jobs like these have happened before. Will it bounce back like it always has? And in rapid fire, GameStop's NFT plans. Who's ahead in AR? And can Uber's strong month continue? But first, the markets today, and Dom Chu brings us those numbers. Oh, with the disappointing jobs numbers that you kind of threw out there, the mixed picture overall, we're seeing that same mixed picture play out with regard to the markets because it hasn't been predominantly negative or positive in the session. And so far today, we're kind of in the middle of a range. The Dow Industrials, though, outperforming up about two-tenths of 1%, just around 65 points or so, 36,297. 4685 is the last trade for the S&P, down about one-quarter of 1%. And the Nasdaq lagging two-thirds of 1% declines, 14,979 the last trade there. So a lot of focus still on big technology. Now, interest rates are a big part of the story today. Despite that mixed jobs report that Kelly mentioned, Interest rates, specifically those tied to the benchmark 10-year Treasury note yield, have now ticked to the highest level in almost two years. At the highs of the day, we were at 1.8%. We're currently at 1.77%. And as you can see here, this is a two-year chart. You've got to go all the way back to January of 2020 pre-pandemic to get to these highs in interest rates. Now, the two-year high is 1.9%. We'll continue to watch that level to see if there's any kind of a magnet effect at that stage. And the stock of the day far and away in the S&P 500 is Discovery. You can see those shares of the media company up about 17% off their session highs right now. It's been a rough go, ups and downs over the last year. But Discovery, the beneficiary early this morning of an upgrade to buy by analysts over at B of A, they think a lot of the positivity around their, wor- their merger with Warner could lead to a true rival, they think, for Netflix and Disney Plus on the streaming content side of things. That kicked off what could be considered maybe a little bit of a short squeeze as well here. Remember, Kelly... It is the second most discovery, the second most shorted stock in the entire S&P 500. Fifteen and a half percent of shares outstanding are short interest. Only American Airlines has a higher short interest in the S&P, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. Wow, that's quite a move. All right, Dom, thank you. Stocks are broadly on track for a losing week, and the jobs report helps illustrate the quandary the Fed is in. The economy adding way fewer jobs than expected, but the unemployment rate sank to a pandemic-era low of 3.9%, and wage gains look strong, rising nearly 5% year-over-year. So is the labor market strong or not? Joining me to discuss the risks for the Fed and the markets here, Gus Fauché is chief economist at PNC, and Sandy Villery is co-portfolio manager of the Villery Balanced Fund. It's great to have you both here. Gus, I will begin with you. And- and it's, I mean, it's very unusual for the unemployment rate to be this low when the Fed's barely embarked on its tightening. 
Well, we're obviously in a very extraordinary circumstance. Uh, the Fed has said that they want the economy to be at full employment before they start to increase the Fed funds rate. I think we're very close to full employment, if not there yet. So I would expect that sometime in the first half of this year, we'll see the Fed start to raise the Fed funds rate as they grow more concerned about an overheating labor market. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess, what would you say, Gus, to those who wonder about how much all of the child tax credits and the various uh, incentives for unemployment benefits and all of that. How has that changed the dynamic of people in the labor force? How is Omicron changing the dynamic of people in the labor force? Well, I, I don't think there's any question, but that the additional aid that uh, households have received from the federal government over the past couple of years have caused some people to drop out of the labor force. And so that makes the labor force look tighter, even if employment isn't back to where it was before the pandemic. Um, that being said, Omicron, we haven't seen any impact of that uh, yet in the job numbers. These numbers are from mid-December. Uh, but even in the unemployment insurance claims, which go through the end of 2021, uh, no let up in hiring because of Omicron. Uh, so we'll have to see if it has an impact on the labor force. But so far, no, no negative impact yet on the job market. Sandy, do you expect the Fed to do several uh, rate hikes this year. You know, what's your expectation there and how does it affect the kind of stocks you're interested in here? Yeah, looking at the, the disappointing, uh, you know, employment numbers that, that came out today, the question is, is that going to change anything the Fed was talking about in their minutes on Wednesday? And I don't think it does. I think they're going to raise, you know, three times in 2022, three times in 23, probably twice in 2024. And maybe more importantly, um, the, the quantitative easing is coming to an end as we get into March of this year. And then we're going to start to run off the $8.3 trillion in treasury and mortgage-backed securities. So we're gonna have some quantitative tightening. So I think rates are going to uh, you know, certainly head higher. You can see that in the 10-year today, the market's act actually acting extremely rationally with uh, NASDAQ and technology stocks that would do really poorly with rates going higher, selling off, and things like the uh, XLF, the, the financial you know, spider uh, rallying today. So the, the market's actually acting uh, pretty rationally given uh, these employment numbers. And you're actually looking to pick up some of the smaller cap growth stocks here, is that right? I am. I mean, small cap underperformed large, you know, last year pretty handsomely. But if you look inside a small cap, uh, you saw the small cap growth index up about two and a half percent last year with small cap value up about 28 percent. So there is a lot of uh, a lot of I would call it value inside of the small cap growth area. And that, that's where we're looking. There's just a, we're going to dig through the rubble and find some some good names that I think can uh, can can really perform nicely uh, in 2022 that are just very much unfairly. Uh, beaten up, in my opinion. And I know a couple of the names you like, maybe not for exactly the same reasons, but Caesars, Palomar Technology, PLMR, and Freeport McMoran, uh, obviously with more tension on copper, I think up 20% copper over the past year, and that's up 32%. Gus, just a final comment here. So do you think the Fed is behind the curve? I don't think so. I think that inflation has come in faster than the Fed was expecting. Um, that being said, the Fed has said, said they wanted to wait till the economy got to full employment before starting to raise the Fed funds rate. Uh, I think we'll be there sometime over the next few months. I expect that the Fed will start to raise rates over the next few months. Uh, and I do think that some of the inflation pressures that we're seeing in the economy are temporary. So I would expect to see a gradual slowing in inflation over the course of 2022. I guess to use the analogy, Gus, I always expect that, you know, as as the Fed's reaching its destination, it's, it's starting to put on the brakes, right? You don't want to get to the destination and then start breaking or you're going past it. So not to keep bringing up the point, but I don't understand why they're not doing more to tighten when the unemployment rate is at almost record lows. 
Um, well, the unemployment rate, I mean, certainly it's fallen faster than people in the Fed were expecting, faster than I've been expecting. Um, but I think they are watching the signs for wage growth. They're watching the tight labor market. Uh, they're watching the unemployment rate for various uh, demographic groups. And again, I think we're at that, close to that full employment level. I think the Fed is getting ready to, to, to start hitting the brakes. Do you think people who have left the labor force are coming back in, Gus? We have seen people come back in, uh, you know, over the past six months or so. Um, the labor force participation rate uh, rose substantially in November. It held steady in December. I think we'll see more of those people come back in. I think some of it's going to be hopefully the fading of the pandemic. Some of it will be higher wages. Uh, some of it will be a return to uh, in-person schooling and child care centers reopening. But I do think that we will see a gradual increase in the labor force over the course of this year. All right. We'll leave it there. Gentlemen, thank you both. Gus Vosche and Sandy Villery on these markets. One place where we're seeing big job openings, medical lab professionals. They're more in demand than ever as COVID cases continue to surge. Kate Rogers is here with that story and the impact. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Well, at a time when testing has never been more important, medical laboratory professionals behind the scenes are in short supply. Not only are these workers running PCR tests for COVID in hospitals, they're also working on diagnosing of other critical conditions like cancers. The shortage creates a ripple effect for all of those in need. At AU Health in Augusta, Georgia, the hospital system is slated for 211 full-time lab professionals, but has only 168. That includes 30 that came out of retirement during the pandemic to help, but others are burning out. We have seen uh, within the laboratories individuals that have left and they're not just leaving our lab, they're leaving the profession. You know, they feel like they don't have enough support and that primarily stems from not enough individuals. They're like, I'm doing all of this and I feel like I'm doing it by myself. And it is, it is heartbreaking when you have a shift and you know that you need five people on that shift, but you can only staff it with two because that's all you have. Now, these are highly defined specialized tests to diagnose variants being run in these labs by workers that many times have not only a bachelor's, but master's and PhDs and even board certifications. They say the pay doesn't keep up with others who have the same certifications, which makes, of course, recruiting an ongoing challenge. Kelly, back and over to you. How does the shortage of testing supplies also impact with the work they're trying to do? Yeah, this is really interesting. So in more rural areas in Georgia, for example, they don't have enough testing supplies. So it's not just about the tests, it's the supplies needed to run those tests. So then they're sending their patients to this AU system and then they're being, you know, just inundated with more and more tests that they have to keep running. Hospitals have to prioritize which tests come first in this situation, which continues to change throughout the pandemic. And some of these shifts are running, you know, half staff. They'll need 14 workers. They can only have seven on at a time. So as we mentioned, many are burning out quickly. Wow. All right. The additional challenge uh, is testing, uh, testing needs surge. Kate, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Our Kate Rogers on where the jobs are. And a quick programming note, the 40th annual J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference kicks off on Monday and CEO Jamie Dimon will join us for a first on CNBC interview. That's Monday right here on The Exchange. Coming up, what stays and what goes if Biden's Build Back Better plan gets scaled way back? That's one set of policy predictions this year. We look at what else could be changing ahead. Plus, Bitcoin hitting a three-month low, down 3% right now and 40% off its highs from November. We'll look at what's driving those declines. 
Home Depot and United Health weighing on the Dow, the biggest laggards today, although now we're seeing two to one green outpacing red. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. President Biden touting his Build Back Better plan in a speech this morning, saying it will help fix what ails the economy. But it's not expected to survive, according to my next guest. Strategist Research Partners out with the top 10 list of policy moves they see coming. They do expect some elements of BBB to survive. They also expect the Fed to redouble its focus on ESG. And kind of as a result, they warn of increasing stock market volatility this year. Joining me now is Dan Clifton, head of policy research with Strategus. Dan, it's great to have you back. Let's actually start with the market volatility. What are you guys foreseeing? Yeah, first, midterm elections tend to be very volatile from a stock market perspective. The average intra-year decline on the S&P 500 is about 13%. That's natural. Those events happen. But when you get into a midterm election year, that intra-year decline is about 19%. It's very, very outside the usual uh, the usual ranges. And we believe that happens for two reasons. First, presidents are trying to pursue and motivate their base. They use a lot of executive powers. They tend to be anti-growth policies. For Trump, it was his trade war. For President Obama, it was banking regulation. And you're likely going to see President Biden using his executive power this year as legislation stalls in Congress. The second reason this happens is because the investors have to grapple with the fact that the other party likely wins in the midterm election. So what does that mean for the debt ceiling in 2023 and the gridlock that ensues from it? The good news is that those steep declines, those intra-year declines, turn out to be some of the best buying opportunities I've ever seen because one year later, stocks are up almost every single time. In fact, every single time, and by an average of 32%. Kelly, I'm probably going to jinx it by telling you this, but the S&P 500 has not declined in the 12 months following a midterm election since 1946, <laughs> largely because the uh, investors begin to anticipate there will be more stimulus ahead of the presidential election. So more volatility based on these policy factors, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. It's temporary, and we tend to rally out of that. Well, there's a lot of logic to what you're saying, that they have to pivot to do something for the base, and that often can be sort of anti-growth, for lack of a better word. Is that going to take the form of Build Back Better here? What planks do you think survive and what odds would you give them of surviving? Sure. Build Back Better, as passed by the House of Representatives, is dead. That's according to Senator Manchin in late December. And the Democrats have to decide how they're going to pick those pieces up. What Senator Manchin is saying is that he wants dollar for dollar, $1.8 trillion of spending matched equally with $1.8 trillion of tax increases. 
The House bill right now is about $5 trillion of spending if you extend all the temporary provisions. And so that means that, in our view, the Democrats are going to have to pick a few items and just do them much better. Those four items are largely going to be driven around climate change spending, about $500 billion, healthcare spending, about $350 billion by expanding healthcare subsidies, pre-kindergarten, and then trying to figure out some way to do the child tax credit. Now, if you do all four of those over 10 years, it comes out to about $2.6 trillion over 10 years. Wow. They only have about $1.8 trillion of revenue. So they're going to have to figure out, do they keep the child tax credit in this bill or try and pass it in another bill? Or do they curtail it so much that it only narrowly impacts a few Americans, particularly below 60,000? These are going to be extremely difficult choices for the Democrats to make. There's going to be a lot of tears over some of the programs that get thrown out, like housing or paid family leave. But there really is no alternative here. This majority has a, a timestamp on it where it may not be here in November. Right. And so you got to pass what you can while you have it now. And my sense is that you'll see a slim down build back better plan. Let's talk about sometime the Fed. By, by the end of the first quarter. Yeah. So that's sort of happening on the fiscal side. Meanwhile, yep. on the monetary side and on the regulatory uh, aspect of the Fed as well, what should we be anticipating there? Yeah. So President Biden's going to make his appointments to the Federal Reserve probably early next week. This is a sea change to have four or five different new Fed people coming on to the board at once. You're going to have confirmation hearings where we're going to be talking about inflation and climate change and banking standards. So there could be a lot of confusion. I would stay focused on the chairman uh, as it relates to inflation. That's going to be his number one focus. But if the president does choose Sarah Bloom Raskin, as is expected, we anticipate that you're going to start seeing more discussion about higher capital standards for the banks in 2023 integrating climate finance for the banks as they finance fossil fuels. And on top of that, uh, just a, a, a more type of uh, focus on employment for some of the new members rather than inflation. So the new chairman is definitely going to have his hands full with a more dovish and more regulatory set of members joining the FOMC. That will be partially offset by some of the regional governors that will be joining for the voting this year. They'll tend to be a little bit more hawkish. And so that's why I think the chairman's going to get what he wants on inflation. But investors do have to anticipate that you're probably going to see more regulation on the banking sector going into 2023. Any last word, maybe on something that I haven't mentioned, because you do have, a, I think it's at least 10 or a dozen of these surprises for the year. A final word you'd want to kind of leave investors thinking about. Yeah, I think this year geopolitics has a much more outsized effect. We really don't pay much attention to it. Many of them have not been investable. But if you get something that goes wrong in Russia, Ukraine, you could be looking at a hundred dollar barrel of oil. And inflation remains the number one political issue going into this midterm election. Uh, and there is a real possibility here that the voters of this country are going to remove the party in power in eight of the nine last elections since the financial crisis. The U.S. has never had political volatility like this hmm. since the end of the Civil War. And uh, for investors, you got to stay on top of this because every two years it's expand health care, raise taxes, cut taxes, take away health care. It just keeps changing every two years. And I think this political volatility is going to be with us until we get economic growth back to normal. Yeah, it can make your head spin and it can also depress returns in some of those asset classes. Dan, thanks very much. We always appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Dan Clifton with Strategus. Still ahead, GameStop looking into bigger moves on crypto and NFTs. The stock popping as much as 30% this morning on the news. But is it really a game changer? We'll discuss. Plus, this house comes with 42 bathrooms and a whole lot of controversy. 
not just because of the bathrooms. We're going to go inside the Bel Air mansion that went from most expensive home in America to heading for the auction block. You don't want to miss it. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow was up 146 at the highs, hanging on to an 85-point gain. It's the only of the major averages in the green right now by a quarter percent. The S&P is down seven points, and the Nasdaq is down 90, so some more pressure as the 10-year yield has spiked to 1.8 percent today. And look at the effect we've had across markets for this week. These are incredible numbers. Energy is the best sector of 10.5 percent. That's its best week since last March, and it's the best-performing sector in the market. Financials are number two with a 5 percent gain this week as rates move higher. Tech is the biggest lagger, down almost 4.5% just since Monday for its worst week since October of 2020. A couple of names show you what's going on. Netflix down 10% since Monday for its worst week since July 2020. It's on pace for its sixth straight daily decline. It's the worst performer of the so-called FANG names this week. It's down 2% today. Microsoft and Alphabet also seeing their worst weeks since March of 2020, the nadir of the pandemic. Uh, Apple, by the way, down more than 3% today. It's only worth $2.8 trillion right now, or basically the equivalent of a dozen Netflixes. Now to Leslie Picker for a CNBC News update. Leslie? Hi, Kelly. Tributes are pouring in from Hollywood and beyond for actor Sidney Poitier, who has died at the age of 94. In 1964, the Bahamian-American actor was the first black male to win the Academy Award for Best Actor in Lilies of the Field. Poitier's trailblazing career spanned more than a half century, including iconic roles in A Raisin in the Sun and Guess Who's Coming for Dinner. Guess who's coming to dinner? The case of a Michigan teen accused in November's deadly mass shooting is headed for trial. 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly, appearing virtually in court today, waived his right to a preliminary hearing. That clears the way for him to stand trial. Crumbly is accused of opening fire at his high school, killing four students and wounding seven others. Citigroup will start enforcing its previously announced no jab, no job vaccine policy, requiring U.S. employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19. That's according to a message sent to staff. Office workers who do not comply will initially be placed on unpaid leave and then terminated at the end of the month. COVID has scrambled the nation's housing market tonight on the news. Is it better to rent or buy in the new normal? 7 p.m. Eastern on CNBC. I'll send it back over to you, Kel. All right, Leslie, thank you very much. Coming up, a non-fungible rally. Software is still eating the world, snapping up the metaverse and getting uber bullish. Rapid Fire is next. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get you up on a few calls that should be on your radar this afternoon. It's time for Rapid Fire. Here to help break it all down, our own Deirdre Bosa, joined by Seymour Asset Management CIO Tim Seymour and Chantico Global CEO Gina Sanchez. Gina and Tim are both contributors. Welcome, one and all. Let's start with GameStop today. Some new games, NFTs and crypto. CNBC confirming with a source familiar with the project that GameStop is building a marketplace for NFTs or non-fungible tokens and plans to establish new crypto partnerships, too. Now, the shares were up 20 to 30 percent when the market opened, but they're up less than 4 percent now. 
starting the year strong, but still down 70% from the 52-week high. Deirdre, what's the opportunity here when there's lots of others already doing NFT <laughs> platforms and the like? And also when this was already announced, uh, but, you know, it's this <laughs> kind of in the meme era, say things like NFT and crypto and your stock is going to get a pop. What's interesting, Kelly, is I looked at Wall Street Bets, the Reddit forum, and saw what the top post was. It's not excitement over NFTs and this sort of business expansion. The top post was a meme of a video that starts with the title 483 bag holder. What does 483 mean? The top for GME shares. They're now down at, what, 136 and change. So it's not having the same pull that it used to. Yes, NFTs is exciting for this company. They're well positioned to do this and be a leader, but this isn't something that's new and there's still a lot of execution that needs to be done. Tim, what would be the best case scenario for GameStop to take its existing assets and do something meaningful in, a, in an exciting space like that? Uh, well, again, there's, there's a lot of competition. There are other platforms that I, I think are in the business of being that platform of buyers and sellers. And, and I think the best thing GameStop can do is what they've already done, which is that they've raised some money. They, they've actually, the, the balance sheet's in great shape. We know that there are smart folks at the helm here who have uh, proven uh, that, that they've done it before. I, I think, you know, a 14% short interest on top of a stock down 72% from its 52-week high is why you got that move in the after hours. I, like, if I was going to buy a meme stock here, it would be Viacom, because Viacom's not a meme stock, uh, and yet has been treated like one and has a real business and is a value play. Um, and so, uh, again, I, I'm not sure what GameStop's uh, path to glory here other than what they've already done. You like when they get de-memed, sort of, uh, if I could put it that way. Gina, is GameStop, I mean, how yes. much more room does it have to fall if it is going to ultimately find some resting point where it's flushed out the new retail base? Um, I think it can still fall further from here because it still, you have to ask the question, what is its basic business? And if it's going to be in the business of changing its business, then what does that look like? I agree that the execution issues um, are uh, a problem or are at least a challenge when you're changing businesses. And let's not forget that the NFT market is really akin to the collectibles market. And it's a market that requires a lot of excess money in the system uh, to be able to support the purchases uh, of those and the continued flow into that space. And that's something that in 2022 is going to go out the door. We're going to see liquidity tighten yeah. and collectibles and NFTs will get hit. That's very well said. So you would you would basically extend that warning, Gina, to anybody who's made a quick buck in this space over the past year or so. Absolutely. Interesting. And we are definitely off to that kind of start this year. All right, we'll move along. Software is still eating the world, according to RBC Capital. They're saying the trade still has legs and is actually shaping up to be one of the most powerful and durable trades of the foreseeable future. They're naming Palo Alto Networks and CrowdStrike as top picks. Two stocks with pretty different 2021s. Palo Alto was up 60 percent, while CrowdStrike dropped about 3 percent. Tim, either of those names interest you? You know, they both do. Um, Palo Alto, believe it or not, is, is kind of a value play in the software space at, you know, around nine times EV to sales. I, I, I like CrowdStrike. And the, the, what was, jumps out to you uh, about this note is they say that they have the ability in the near term, and that's kind of a vague term, to grow their installed base 10 times. Um, but relative to other SaaS players, and especially in, in the security spot, um, as the firewall kind of refresh cycle is really only getting going, Stocks very inexpensive to its peers. It's probably 
40% cheap to its peers. Nope. And, and I like the stock on a, on a big pullback here. I think you're picking your spots, but I think CrowdStrike is, uh, deserves that growth. Yeah. And Deirdre, we should note, I mean, software eating the world was, a, was an exciting idea 10 or 15 years ago. <laughs> and now yeah. it feels like the exciting places are where it's still changing sort of other sectors. Like I think of John Deere with its autonomous tractor and, and technologies like mm -hmm. that, which is not to say that Deere would be a better stock than Palo Alto or CrowdStrike, but I'm just curious, you know, I guess this is a pretty well-known story. Yeah, we talk about this all the time, right? Software is eating the world, but now you have to be a bit more discerning when every company wants to be a tech company. You could throw Peloton into that John Deere group as well, a company mm -hmm. that you don't traditionally think of as technology or software that is now that has come down huge amounts from those, you know, pandemic bumps. And another area that's interesting, we talked about cybersecurity, but enterprise AI, right? This was supposed to be the really exciting new area. You have the likes of Palantir and C3AI and Snowflake. You see that you have to distinguish even within this smaller group. A C3AI has come down so much hmm. and these valuations are being re-rated a little bit. But, you know, Wall Street seems to like a Snowflake better. So, yes, uh, software is eating the world, but it's a lot harder to pick it these days. Which software stocks, Gina, look attractive to you, given the liquid liquidity dynamics we were just <clears throat> talking about? Well, I think that, you know, what, what you care about right now is you care about valuation. The market seems to be focused very strongly on valuation. And so, but you know that we are experiencing growth. That's not going away. So growth at a reasonable price becomes the way you evaluate stocks. And so you have to have that growth component along with cheap valuations, which takes out some of your bigger players, which are highly overvalued right now. And I think it's one of the reasons that something like Palo Alto Networks or CrowdStrike looks attractive because both are relatively inexpensive. Um, and I think the market is going to be focused on that as liquidity goes out the door. All right. So both of you, Tim and Gina, kind of like those names, given what's happened with the reset. Next up, Jeffrey says Snap is a best play on the metaverse, naming it a top pick in augmented reality, a space that's really occupied for years. The firm says its Discover platform has a highly engaged audience and its unique AR products are reasons to be bullish. Snap shares up about 1.7% today. They're still down 10% over this past week, and they dropped 6% in 2021. Gina, I have wondered about this. Are they going to be late to get a halo effect from all of their investments into the VR, AR space, or are they just too small and not part of the mainstream narrative on this story? I think it's a little bit of both, Kelly. I mean, I think Snaps, when they first came out, the big question was how are they going to monetize? And it has taken them a while to sort of get that path um, going. And meanwhile, anybody competing against them has already grown dramatically. I think they are a little late. And I think that the market right now is not going to be willing to sort of step up and, and, and support highly valued or kind of still growing companies. Um, so I think that they're not well positioned given the marketplace right now that they're just hitting their stride. Tim, you like them? Look, I, I, it's it, valuation-wise again relative to the the big gorilla and, and of Meta, it, it's not even close. It's very expensive, even after a fifty percent pullback off of fifty-two week highs. I, I do think you have to look at really their core business, though, and, and say what's going on in the digital ad space, and that they were seeing you know growth on on uh, revenues there anywhere from you know fifteen to to thirty percent on 
with most vendors is part of the story. I think that the bigger issues for Snap have been, yes, an environment where high multiple stocks have been punished. There are the iOS privacy issues that I think still kind of hang over. We still don't really know um, what this will mean for, for Snap. And I think more exposed maybe even than, than, than Facebook. So True. Um, that's the story here. But there's a lot of scarcity uh, in terms of investment places to park cash not just in the meta space, but really in social media. And I think that's part of been the success of, of Snap as an investment. And its PE is still 110, Deirdre, even though it's only a $42 stock. <laughs> yeah, it's expensive. But, you know, I do think it's kind of this underrated metaverse play. What I think is interesting that Snap is doing versus some of its competitors is it's actually experimenting with AR and VR in the open. It's not being ultra secretive like an Apple, um, but it's users. And remember, it's users are younger too. that demographic that advertisers want. They're already using it. So it's not being talked about as, you know, a headset that's going to be coming out in the future. Users are getting comfortable with it now, and it's extremely sticky among that generation. All right. It, it has proven durable, if nothing else, given everything else that's come on the scene. <laughs> Finally today, the street is pretty bullish on Uber. Needham, Mizuho, and Jefferies are all naming the stock a top pick for 2022. They name as Catalyst a resurgence in the gig economy, opportunity in grocery delivery, and an attractive valuation after last year's pullback. Shares have been flat to start this year. They dropped 17%. Last year, Deirdre, I'm coming to you first on this one. I mean, the, the thing I keep watching, isn't 45 the IPO price from like 2019, 2018 maybe? And we're still at 42. It is. We've been watching this level forever since it went public. And, you know, Wall Street loves this stock, but people in technology in Silicon Valley, a lot less so these days now that it's being run by an operator, Darwakaz Shahi. I think that a lot of these calls are around the value in Uber. It is relatively less expensive than, say, a DoorDash, which has a much higher multiple, but hasn't really changed the fundamentals. It has still been losing market share to Tony Hsu and DoorDash. Yes, it's trying to innovate through acquisitions, M&A, while Tony Hsu and DoorDash are really doing it largely organically. So I think in terms of the long term, you got to figure out which team you believe in. Uh, this could easily be a value trap, though, as it has been over the last two years. Tim? Yeah, I, I don't think you're going after it on valuation. I agree. And, and I think it's it's you're going after it because you actually want that that super app of, of, of multiple platforms, you know, like the Drizzly acquisition, not a game changer. But, it, you know, it's another reason why maybe you're going to Uber. I think they have to hold on to these five percent kind of delivery margins and, and, and 10 percent on, on transportation. And these are really big, important numbers for, for the stock. Um, when they talk about adjusted EBITDA, as an investor, you always have to kind of say, hold on a second, what is adjusted EBITDA? And I, that's one of these things on profitability that I still think is part of the uh, the overhang for Uber. I, I like it. Look, I like it. I'd rather be in the super app uh, versus a Lyft. And, and uh, I think at this level, 40 bucks on the stock has proven to be pretty good support. All right. Gina, what say you? Well, look, I think that the biggest challenge that Uber always had was that it had negative operating leverage, which which is that all of these companies were losing on every single transaction that they were making. And until they fixed that, that they weren't going anywhere. Um, the, the pandemic allowed them an opportunity to raise prices and start to right size that. Um, and that is meaningful, actually. If they can fix that problem permanently, um, then that works. But it does mean that, you know, you, you look down the road for these, it's still making losses. And um, the path to profitability still looks a long way away. And I think that's a challenge to Uber. I believe it there. Deirdre, should I be using DoorDash? 
for like quick grocery. <laughs> I, I feel like you're you're like you know how to navigate all of these different offerings. Are they? Can I can I get stuff quickly from them on demand, like from the store? Well, let me tell you, but I, I subscribe to a lot of them. If I'm trying to, you know, decrease my subscription footprint, can I do without DoorDash? <laughs> Probably not. I actually like the subscription uh, effect of it because delivery, food delivery actually is pretty expensive. You're paying so much in fees so that eliminates it a little bit. Depends what you're looking for, Kelly. If it's restaurant delivery, I think yes. Grocery delivery, not so much yet. All right. It's more the latter. But I just, you know, let me know when it when I need to and I'll, I'll be on board. Deirdre, we appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa, <laughs> Tim Seymour, Gina Sanchez, all joining us today for this edition of Rapid Fire. And still ahead, you've seen the headlines. 51% of Americans have less than three months worth of emergency savings. Less than 40% could afford an unexpected $1,000 cost. Now some companies are putting savings boosting benefits in place for employees. And we have all those details next. Welcome back. In a new survey, nearly 20% of Americans reported they didn't save any money at all in 2021. Now some companies are trying to help workers boost their emergency cash on hand. Sharon Epperson joins us now with that story. Sharon? Well, Kelly, you know, in the COVID crisis, it can be tough for some people to save. Yet many have had a wake-up call about the importance of preparing financially for the unexpected. A new survey from Betterment finds that nearly half of full-time workers, 46 percent, said they didn't think they needed an emergency fund before the pandemic. But now they say they do. And employers are taking note. Folks did not have a short-term savings vehicle. And their backstop was their retirement plan. And so they were tapping their long-term savings options in order to meet short-term savings needs. Now, Voya Financial started offering emergency savings solutions to its workplace clients in 2020. And about 26 percent of plan sponsors use Roth or other after-tax contribution features to help employees build emergency funds. And about 60 percent are interested in doing so, according to Willis Towers Watson. Health savings accounts, or HSAs, that can pay for unexpected medical costs are also increasingly popular. If you put money into an HSA... That money is going in on a tax-deferred basis. The earnings on those funds are are tax-free. And then the distribution provided that they are used for qualifying medical expenses um, are also typically tax-free. Now, offering these savings options could give employers an advantage, too, in attracting and retaining workers. We have a lot more about this on CBC.com slash invest in you, Kelly. All right, Sharon, how much money can employees put away if they're offered this benefit? You know, it varies widely with the emergency savings options. Some may allow workers to stash away as much as $10,000 a year. Health savings accounts, or HSA, do have annual contribution limits that are set by the IRS. First, you have to have a high deductible health insurance plan. And then if you do and you have family coverage, you can put away up to $7,300 in 2022. And you can contribute up to $3,650 as an individual with self-only coverage. It looks appealing. Sharon, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Sharon Epperson. Absolutely. Up next, crypto getting slammed in the first week of the year, and there's an interesting market cap trend afoot. We will dig in next. (music) 
Welcome back, everybody. Bitcoin and Ether kicking off the year on a down note, falling 11 and 15 percent respectively. And they're nearly 40 percent off the high setback in November. And the composition of the crypto market is changing, too. Ethereum's market cap is now more than 50 percent of Bitcoins, and it only makes up 39 percent of the value of the whole crypto space. That's the lowest ratio since 2018. Joining me now to discuss is Jody Gunsberg. She's managing director at Coindesk Indices. Jody, welcome. So what are what are the bulls saying about this weakness we've seen in crypto lately? Well, I think that what we're seeing, the most important thing was the Fed's indication that might they might be raising rates, which could hurt Bitcoin prices as the dollar rises since Bitcoin is priced in dollars. But um, also some of the unrest in Kazakhstan shook the confidence in Bitcoin's network capacity. So the bulls, what I think is going to happen is investors will use this price drop as a buying opportunity since the technology is valuable and it's here to stay. But rather than just buying Bitcoin, investors are going to take this opportunity to buy a variety of digital assets because the risk of Bitcoin itself is too high. Is too high. Why would Bitcoin be perceived as riskier than something like Ethereum or whatever else is out there, Solana and Cardano and you name it? Bitcoin's risk isn't necessarily higher than Ethereum or Solana or any of the individual digital assets, but it's way higher than something like equities as an asset class. So one way to manage that risk is to diversify across the different digital assets that can reduce some of that risk, um, or they might be able to invest in baskets that are sector specific, or they can use strategies with futures and cash to manage the volatility if they are comfortable with just Bitcoin itself. You know, I wonder about that approach because it feels to me like it's gaining more popularity. The idea of, well, when I'm in stocks, I want the S&P 500. So if I'm going to look at crypto, I want broad exposure as well. But stocks have to graduate into the S&P 500. They have to be born. They have to perform well, maybe privately for many years. They have to go public at a high valuation. They have to be voted by a committee into the S&P 500. You know, meanwhile, with crypto, there are some standards like Bitcoin that are pretty well vetted, Ethereum, some of the newer ones, not so much. And it doesn't seem like you know, you're making the same bet on something as proven as you would be by being a diversified holder of stocks. The process for selecting digital assets is following the process of the traditional asset. It's just a far newer asset class. We really only have data for Bitcoin itself going back to 2014 in the indices. And now, with the expansion of all of the digital assets using the cryptography and blockchain technology, we're able to classify the assets into defined sectors and industries to really help investors understand how to invest in them. So just as you would have things like financials or technology or energy, we have other sectors in digital assets like currencies or smart contract platforms or DeFi that enable investors to play across the space and manage their risks appropriately. It, certainly style investing, you know, whether by risk metrics or others is a, is a you know, tried and true method. Well, at least it's, it's a long tried method, but uh, I totally understand why it's coming for crypto now. And again, Coindesk does offer a lot of these opportunities. Jody, thanks for joining me to talk about it. Hope to check back in soon. 
Thanks. Jody Gunsberg with Coindesk. Up next, the one was supposed to fetch $500 million, but now it's hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. How America's most expensive home went belly up after this quick break. Welcome back. It's the half a billion dollar Bel Air bust. What was once America's most expensive home? Heading to the auction block. Feel like I've seen this story before. Robert Frank is here with it, though. Hi, Robert. Well, Kelly, it is a 100,000 square foot mega mansion in Bel Air, California. The estate known as The One listed this morning at $295 million. If it sells for that price, it will be most expensive home ever sold in the U.S. It's four acres overlooking downtown L.A. and the Pacific Ocean. The main house has 21 bedrooms, 42 baths. It's got a nightclub, a 40-seat movie theater, cigar room, beauty salon, gym, wellness spa, a bowling alley, a 10,000-bottle wine cellar, and a garage for over 30 cars. The master suite alone is over 5,000 square foot with its own terrace pool. There are actually seven water features in total, including an indoor lap pool and a moat that goes around the house. Now, it also comes with plenty of controversy and, as you mentioned, a lot of debt. The builder, who is a Hollywood producer turned developer named Niall Niami, he defaulted on over $180 million in loans. So, if it doesn't sell in the next month, it will head to the auction block as part of that bankruptcy agreement. Now, the market for mega mansions has never been stronger. There were actually eight sales last year for over $100 million. Normally, Kelly, there are just one or two. So this is a great market. We'll see whether they can beat time here and sell it before this auction that starts on February 7th. But you know what I mean, Robert? It always seems like the ones that are just way out of, you know, like the biggest of everything, like they, they just, it, it's almost like their market power is so much worse than the ones who are only $100 million. Yeah, and this is the result of this mega mansion building boom that started in 2015. And there was this arms race of builders that wanted to be ever bigger, ever more expensive, and it just spun out of control. And you're right. These houses that are just beyond what even a billionaire would want, they have trouble finding buyers. We'll see where it eventually settles out. But you're right. We see this every few years, something that just went a little too far on the mega mansion scale. <laughs> just a little. It looks like a hotel. Yeah. What would the taxes be on something like this? About $2 million a year <laughs> if it sells for around $200, $200 million. But the insurance is even more than that. So just to operate this thing, you're probably looking at somewhere between four and five million a year just to keep it running. Yeah, you know, it's 42 bathrooms, the number of staff you'd need to keep that clean. <laughs> the whole thing is ridiculous. Robert, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Our Robert Frank reporting will be interesting to see what happens with the price there. And don't forget, everybody, the 40th annual J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference kicks off on Monday, and CEO Jamie Dimon will join us in a first on CNBC interview. That's Monday right here on The Exchange around 1 p.m. Eastern. That does it for us today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>